This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. All right, welcome to the very first episode of our titillating summer series mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of Scissors and Scrubs. Yes. I'm Nicole, who um, sounds like she's half dead. I'm Lara, who also sounds like that. Yep. With between allergies and getting over the flu, it's a good time. Yeah, it's a real good time. Good. So I sound fabulous. So this week we're talking about. I just realized how sunburned you are. Oh, you should see. I'm sorry, I just looked at her and she's like, she's this got, is like, she's fried. I this is literally I think a second degree burn. You're fried. I know. Wow. Yeah. All right. Uh huh. I was just looking. I'm like, oh, she's she's burnt. Yeah. <laughs> That's us. We'll talk about sunburns later. Um. We are talking about the USS Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. For Memorial Day. For Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever watched my favorite movie, Jaws, you'll have known Quint talks about he was on the SS Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cover this gruesome, Ugh, awful, gruesome story. Mm-hmm. And Sparkles is going to take it away. Okay. Um, I got my information from history.com and Britannica.com. And since we both took it from the same space, that's mine as well. <laughs> Just know it. Um, so the USS Indianapolis was built in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was launched in 1931 and commissioned by the U.S. Navy in 1932. The Indy, quote unquote Indy, that's what they called it, <laughs> the sailors. Yeah, sailors. Uh-huh. Sail the talk. Um, the Indy was a Portland class heavy cruiser. It was 610 feet, three inches long, and weighed 9,950 tons. That's a lot. Yeah. It carried nine eight-inch guns and eight five-inch anti-aircraft guns. It was powered by eight boilers that turned four steam turbines. It could reach a speed of 32 knots. So it was a big ship. Yep. And it could move. Um, in its first years, it operated in the Atlantic and Pacific... It carried President Franklin D. Roosevelt on three tours, Ooh. cruises, whatever That's you call kind them. Kind of interesting. Yeah, so it was like a like a well known ship. It was, it was a showboat. A, yeah, it was a big showboat. Um, in 1943, it became the flagship of the U.S. Fifth Fleet in the Pacific Theater under Vice Admiral Raymond Spruance. <laughs> well, Maybe. <laughs> um, it was in the bombardment of Iwo Jima in 1945. It was then damaged by a Japanese kamikaze plane off Okinawa, but it was really quickly repaired Mm -hmm. and put right back into service, active service. In July 1945, it was sent on a high-speed, very secret mission to deliver cargo to a U.S. airbase on um, Tinian, it's T-I-N-I-O-N, one of the Marina Islands in the Western Pacific. So it had to go from the U.S., to this little island mm-hmm. on a top secret mission in 1945. With special cargo, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Um, it traveled from San Francisco to Tinian in only like 10 days. It, the fast. ship can move. Um, they're, they're hauling ass to get there. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like, you gotta go. Go. The crew did not know what they were carrying, but they knew it was something of importance. Mm-hmm. Everything, like, leading up to it, getting it on board, getting it off board, everyone knew there's something... There's Vegas something big going on. Um, Major Robert Furman, who was a chief intelligence officer of the Manha- Manhattan Project, said, um, 
this is a quote from him. The shipment was no bigger than two old-fashioned ice cream freezes, cylindrical and of shiny aluminum. The lid of the bucket-like container was bolted down, and out of the top protruded two eye bolts through which we ran a pipe whenever we carried it over long distances. Uranium being the heaviest of natural elements, the weight of this object was considerable, and it moved about as easily as a lump of lead. Actually, what we were transporting was one half the essence of the atomic bomb with all the fusing, firing mechanisms, and casements removed. So everything on the outside of the bomb was not on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems unbelievable now that we did, we did all we did, knowing as little as we knew of what the bomb in that form could do. We knew from what we had been told that the contents of our shipment were inert, but no one acted to sh- too sure about it. So they knew it was really, you had to be really careful with it? Right, and they, they knew nothing could happen to it if it didn't have all that stuff with it. Right, but it's you don't still want to mess with an it. atomic bomb yeah. on your ship. Um, Lewis K.O. Irwin was a coxswain. <laughs> he said, most didn't pay attention at first. It was just the typical loading of supplies with the crane, but we knew something was going on. They had guards on the station at all times. Of course, we didn't know what it was, but we knew it was a big deal, and we were glad to get rid of it by the time we reached Tinian. Clarence Hirschberger was a seaman first class. He said, rumors started flying all over the place. Wages were being made and everybody was betting on what that crate contained. They were wagering it was anything from a new type of airplane engine to scented toilet paper for General MacArthur. <laughs> what did <laughs> it smell like? <laughs> Needless to say, nobody ever collected a nickel on that belt, on that bet. So when they arrive at Tinian at the quote-unquote destination... Like a small armada of whale boats and other small vessels meet them out in port. Like they don't even get to the dock and all these little boats are coming towards them. And the boats have a ton of high ranking officials on them. Like these little That's teeny weird. Yeah. fishing boats. All these huge high. They're like, okay, I don't know what's on Because him. MacArthur with his scented toilet yeah. paper. Yeah. But there's something big on this boat. And then the pier behind them, they said, was completely covered with military police. Like you couldn't, all you could see on the pier was military police. Um, A small boat pulled up beside the Indy, and they unloaded the two cylindrical containers. The sailors, the sailors then all figured out they had just transported the two pieces of an atomic bomb. Um, after they unload the top-secret shipment, they stop over at Guam. Apparently, that's, everybody just stops over yeah, in Guam. it's a big happening place, Guam. Yeah. On July 28th, Captain McVeigh tells his crew, takes his crew to sea on a routine voyage from Guam to late, I'm not going to, L-E-Y-T-E, mm-hmm. Philippines, um, which was about 1,200 miles due west. McVeigh inquires about the tactical situation, like what's happening in this water? Are we good? Right. You know, what's going on? And Commodore James Carter, who is the commander of the Pacific Fleet's advance headquarters, told him the Japanese, quote, are on their last legs and there's nothing to worry about, end quote. Oh, that's foreshadowing. Yep. Um, but Lieutenant... Commander Makitsura Hashimoto was the commander of the Japanese submarine I-58. He wanted to claim one more ship before his country was defeated. He knew they were going to lose. He wanted one more. Wow. So Lowell Dean Cox, who was a seaman second class, said, The big ships like Indianapolis didn't have sonar, and they required some destroyers to be with them. So they, their ship didn't have any sonar, so they, they needed other ships. They battle group. Yeah. yeah. That had sonar to check mm-hmm. the waters ahead of them. Here we are going from Guam to the Philippines without a destroyer escort. They, which he means Carter and the Guam rooting, assured the captain everything was all right. 
We left thinking everything was fine. July 30th was a black, dark night in that submarine skipper. He looked towards the east, and here was a little speck that he recognized as a ship. We were coming right toward him, or fairly close, and he crashed, drove, got in position, put a periscope on us, and watched us. The first torpedo strikes the Indy in the starboard bow and killed dozens of men instantly. They were blessed. Yep. Then another torpedo struck midship and ignited all the aviation fuel stores. In fire and explosions tear through the entire ship. So just hundreds of men are immediately killed. Um, Santos Pena, who was a seaman first class, said, I heard, heard an explosion which knocked me off the ready box, knocking me on the deck. I had no time to get off the deck before I heard the second explosion. I got up as soon as the second explosion and looked forward and found the whole bow was gone. I tried to get communication between Sky Control and the bridge using sound power phones and the ship's service phones, but both were out of operation. So they can't even call the other Mm -hmm. parts of the ship to say, hey, what's going on? Get out of there. Whatever. Felton Outland was a seaman first class. He said, I asked my friend George Abbott after the ship got hit. I says... Go get us some life jackets. This thing's jumping mighty bad, and I don't know what's going to happen. George went, and he came back in a few minutes and had one life jacket. So he gave me that one. He hung around a minute or two, and he said, I think I'll go get another one. I said, I think you better. He did, but I didn't ever see him again. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Um, John McCall, seaman second class, said, they tell you to throw your life jacket in first, then jump in and get your life jacket. So they tell you to throw your life jacket overboard, jump in and get it. I looked over at the ship's rail and there was too many guys who didn't have a life jacket i decided when i got there i was going to have one i strapped mine on before jumping overboard and went through the navy procedure holding on to the collar when you hit the water you know how you have mm-hmm. to hold it like so it doesn't so go up over your, your face um it felt like my legs were going down and my top was going up when i hit the water fuel oil and seawater went down my throat Ugh. yep i was gagging and spitting and trying to swim away from the ship i finally threw up and got rid of most of it but then when I ran out of air, I stopped and looked back at the ship and it was going down. The USS Indianapolis sank in 12 minutes. Which is really fucking fast. Really fast. The Titanic took two hours. Yeah. And that was fast. Yeah. Um, and it sunk 280 miles from the nearest land. 300 men went down with the ship. It was 10 minutes past midnight on July 30th when 900 men went into the water. All right. So I talked about Quint. Because mm-hmm. we're going to pick up from there. Famous scene in Jaws. All right. Famous scene. Quint's my favorite character, I think, ever in any movie. Ever. And they're all sitting around and they're drinking. He's got the tattoo, USS Indianapolis. And I think Richard Dreyfus had never heard the story. He's like, you've never heard the story? I've never heard the story. And he goes, you know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes. Like a doll's eyes. Mm-hmm. All those 900 men got to find out what it's like. Mm-hmm. So 900 men make it into the water alive as the sun rises on July 30th. Again, pardon my voice. The sounds of the sinking ship and the thrashing of men combined with the blood of some severely wounded Mm. attracts the sharks. The big shark that shows up is the oceanic white tip shark. The oceanic white tip is a top predator with a love of the open ocean. He wants to be out where he doesn't see humans. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really like humans. Mm -hmm. But... He's an opportunist. Yeah. Look at it's fucking 900 men in the ocean. They got a little olive oil on them. Yeah. See what this is all about. Yeah, they salt it up. Yep. So yeah. he's going to eat whatever's out there. Mm-hmm. And if there happens to be a meal of a lot of men out in the middle of the ocean, well, he's going to take it. So 
unless you were shipwrecked in the open ocean, the chances of human having contact with the oceanic white tip shark is slim to none. Mm -hmm. So as the sun rises, so do the sharks. The living men begin to scavenge. Like, so they're all in the water. They're covered in oil. It's day one. They are scavenging life jackets and supplies from the dead men in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to give life jackets, like you said, to those who didn't have any because a lot went in without any. Then they begin to form groups. Mm-hmm. Some were large groups of about 300, some are small of about 30 men, and they're waiting for rescue. They don't know that the men, um, the sinking of the ship never got reported. Mm-hmm. July 31st, it was due to come into Lighty, Lighty, whatever it's called in the Philippines. And the ship was removed from the board at headquarters and recorded as having arrived on the 31st. Mm. Lieutenant Stuart B. Gibson is responsible for tracking the movements of the Indianapolis. And Gibson knows immediately the ship never shows up. But he doesn't really investigate, doesn't think anything of it. He doesn't make any report to his superior officers. Mm. In the first official statement, the Navy says uh, distress calls, quote, were keyed by radio operators and possibly were actually transmitted but that, quote, no evidence had been developed that any distress message from the ship was um, received by any ship, aircraft, or air station. Mm-hmm. Later reports showed that three stations received distress calls from the Indianapolis. Oh. One commander was drunk. Another commander had told his men, don't disturb me no matter what. And a third had thought it was a Japanese trap. So he wasn't going to send any ships because mm-hmm. he thought they were trying to lure them out to sink them. So, nevertheless, no help is sent for the 900 survivors in the water. The first night that the men were in the water, the first day, the, the sharks are going after the dead bodies. Ensign Twibble, he is the only officer to make it into the water. Um, he um, he recalls <coughs> everyone's calm when the water when they went into the water. Like, mm-hmm. everything's all right. And about most of these kids, they're 18, 19-year-old boys. I mean, can you imagine ourselves no, in this kind of a situation? I, no. they're, they're, they're 18, 19-year-old boys. So now the dead bodies have all been consumed. The, sh- the shark's like, there's more food here. They start going after the living, living, most of who were severely injured. So the groups of 30 to 300 had more success in fighting off the attacks. They would stay away from these big groups because the men are kicking. And these sharks, they can't stand still. I, I don't think any shark can. I don't right. know why they specifically say this one. So they don't want to deal with any big fight because they mm. get other it's easier targets. Um, the men in the groups would have to cut away the dead men from their group. So if you died in the night, you got cut off and you got sent out because they didn't want to deal with the sharks coming after mm-hmm. them. If you had um, massive wounds, you were isolated. They didn't. You, they would quarantine themselves from you. You were fucked. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you found yourself alone, you were done. Yeah. One group of survivors found a can of spam. So oh. all the stuff goes in the water, the can, the water, this and that. And they're starving mm-hmm. and they're dying of thirst. Mm-hmm. They make the mistake of opening the can of spam and here come the sharks. So oh they want to throw, they didn't even eat it. They throw the can away so that the sharks won't come after them. Other survivors are so paralyzed with fear that they can't eat or drink anything. Mm-hmm. And even whatever they did manage to scavenge. And this goes on for, for days. The sharks fed for four days. <sighs> As the days pass, survivors were dying from heat and exposure mm-hmm. during the day and hypothermia at night. Others are hallucinating and beginning to drink the seawater, oh. which would kill them. It gives you um, seawater poisoning, they call it. Some would slip into madness, foaming at the mouth and tongue, and lips would swell. The crazed men would drag their friends down with them oh. as they were hallucinating. Yeah. So I got a couple of accounts. 
of that. It's just a very joyful episode. It's All terrible. right. Lyle. <laughs> Lyle, you got a quite a last name. Umenhofer, Seaman First Class. When I looked down at myself, I noticed I was covered in this oil. And the first instinct is to get away from it, you know? Because if it catches on fire, then you're really in trouble. Mm -hmm. The first impulse is to swim away from it. So I swam away, and this was a little after midnight when it happened. And then by probably about 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm still swimming. I didn't have anything. I didn't even have a life jacket. So he's swimming from midnight to 5.30 in the morning. Oh my God. Paul McGinnis, signalman, third class. While I was completely coherent, this was my thought. Keep struggling and staying alive. It was very miserable because of the sun burning the skin. One could not escape it. It was like having your head in a hole in the middle of a mirror with all the sunlight being reflected and Ugh. burning your face. So hot. It was miserable. It was like hell. You couldn't wait for the sun to go down. When the sun went down, it was a relief. Then it would get cold and you would start to shiver and you couldn't wait for the sun to come back up. Mm. Grainville Cra uh, Crane, machinist mate, second class. Oh, my son's going to be a machinist mate. Men began drinking salt water so much that they were very delirious. In fact, a lot of them had weapons like knives, and they'd be so crazy that they'd be fighting amongst themselves and killing one another. And then there'd be others that drank so much salt water that they were seeing things. They'd say, the Indians down below, and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley. And they'd swim down, and the sharks would get them. Oh. And you could see the sharks eating your comrade. That's fucking cheery, huh? Yeah. Eugene Morgan. Boatswain's... Boatswain? Boatswain's mate. Second class. We're butchering the shit. You yeah. know that, right? Yeah. All the time, the sharks never let up. We had a cargo net that had styrofoam things attached to keep it afloat. There were about 15 sailors on this, and suddenly, 10 sharks hit it, and there was mm. nothing left. And this went on and on. Ugh. So, these poor fuckers. Mm -hmm. Goes on for five nights, four days, because they're going in the night. So, mm -hmm. four full days of this shit. 11 a.m. on the fourth day, a Navy Lieutenant Junior Grade, William Chuck Gwynn, a PV-1 Ventura pilot on a routine search. Totally interrupting this for a second. Did you hear about that guy that landed the plane with no flying mm -hmm. experience? Mm -hmm. Would you not shit yourself? Yeah. No, I wouldn't even be able to call. Did you hear any of like the, the radio control tower with yeah. him? And he's like, you got any experience? Nope. nope. You know where you are? <laughs> nope. I have no idea. I don't know. That made me think of that. I was like, holy shit. All right. Back to um, Wilbur Chuck Wynn, PV-1 Ventura pilot on a routine search. Spotted a slick of oil. Flip. He dies and he sees all the men are in the oil. Mm -hmm. Gwyn radios for help and within hours a seaplane, Lieutenant Adrian Mark, pilot, returns to the scene and drops survival supplies. What happened though is where he drops these supplies, they can't get to them. And these guys are too tired to swim yeah, to it. They're and they're not leaving. Days. They're in a group that's keeping the sharks away. They're not fucking leaving. Right. Mark sees men being attacked by the sharks. Oh and God. against orders, he lands his seaplane. And I forgot where I read it, but he winds up, he picks up the stragglers, the most men at risk, and he has them all over the place. He's strapping them to the wings. He can't even fly the plane anymore, but he's keeping them out of right. the water. Um, little after midnight, the USS Doyle arrives and pulls the last of the survivors out. The Indianapolis had a crew of 1,196,000. 900 went into the water. 317 made it out. The estimated number killed by shark attacks ranges from a dozen to 150. The Indianapolis remains the worst maritime disaster in U.S. naval history. Mm. The commander of the Indianapolis, Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, he is court-martialed for failing to order an abandoned ship call and for not following a zigzag course through Japanese waters, even though he was told, it's don't fine. worry about it, mm -hmm. even though he was supposed to have a patrol and was never given one, yeah. even though, even though, even though. Mm -hmm. 
he alert he they don't find him on the charges. He eventually, I mean, years later, is exonerated of everything because it, it was not his fault. It was mm-hmm. the Navy playing the blame game. He retires from the Navy in 1949 as a real, <clears throat> excuse me, as a rear admiral. 1968, he's found on his front lawn by a gardener. He had a toy sail- sailor in one hand and a revolver in the other. He took his life at the age of 70. Oh. He could never get over mm. what had happened on the Indianapolis. Many survivors suffered lifelong health complications from prolonged exposure to the salt water and the bunker oil that was all over them. Like that. That. Never mind. Psychological. Oh, oh Jesus God. Christ. I don't know. How, I don't. I think the men who died instantly were blessed. Yeah. Because I don't want to die from a shock. I don't want to die any of those ways, to be honest with no. you. But the guys who got blown up, I'm hoping to think it was just quick. It had to, yeah. You know, they That's didn't know what the hell happened. But yeah. four days in the water. Waiting no, for a shock to come eat you. Yes, oh. yes. I mean, I think one of the lines Quint says is like, the last, the worst part was waiting to be rescued and waiting to see if you were going to make it out before the shocks got you. Yeah. I just can't imagine no. what that must have been like. No, that's, it's horrifying. I had an uncle who uh, was in the Marines in World War II and he was in Guadalcanal. He was in Guadalcanal. And he said, <clears throat> at night, you'd hear like the crocodiles coming up or whatever and dragging the bodies off the beach. Oh. I mean, he was... 80 something yeah he never got over that no you don't ever get over that shit no so to all of our veterans and to all those who have passed Mm -hmm. thank you for your service i know this is memorial day not veterans day but still thank you and you remember all of those who died so we can put a podcast like this on yeah so not the cheeriest but it does cover animal attacks it does cover it does start the summer series memorial day is the kickoff to summer we're on a boat we're on a boat yeah um, <clears throat> Laura and I have a lot going on this summer, so we're going to do a repeat episode down the road. We put it up on Facebook and TikTok and ETC. Pick right in and write your choice. You want bears, cougars, and sharks, or summer in the eighties? Mm-hmm. Summer in the eighties is winning out right now. Yeah. So, put in your uh, your vote to see if you can get what you want to hear. Yeah, and then we'll be back with the regular. Hope you enjoy. Bye. Bye. Like, subscribe, rate, and review the Scissors and Scrubs podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs. And email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.